Okay, so hello everyone. Welcome to episode 23 of Wake Up Call podcast. Uh, today we have a very special guest and a very interesting topic that is animal welfare. And we are talking today to Martin Gould, who is the Senior Program Associate for Farm Animal Welfare in Open Philanthropy. He works on identifying opportunities to improve uh, farmed animal welfare and issues related to this sphere. We're very excited to have you on and welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. So as a starting question, we just wanted to know more about the organization that you work for. Uh, what is open philanthropy and how is that tied to maybe effective altruism? What are its main goals? So open philanthropy is a philanthropic funder with the mission to help others as much as we can with the resources available to us. Uh, established about 10 years ago, uh, open field now has about 80 staff. And in 2020, we recommended uh, $650 million US dollars in grants. Uh, Open Philanthropy works across a number of areas, uh, including global health and development, risks from emerging technology, and farm animal welfare. And uh, Open Field takes quite an analytical approach to selecting cause areas and to identifying grants, um, broadly, in, in, broadly consistent with the types of approaches used within the effective altruism community. So our three key criteria um, when it comes to evaluating a cause area, um, the three criteria, scale, neglectedness, and tractability. So scale here refers to how large an issue is, that is how many people or animals does it affect and, and how much does the issue affect them. Um, neglectedness here refers to the level of attention that an issue receives. The more neglected an issue is, the, the higher chance we think we can have a significant impact. And finally, tractability, which refers to um, whether it's possible to make progress on addressing the issue. Um, and just finally, Openfield aims to share what it's learning so that other grant makers um, can, can build on our work. Um, and so for those interested, there's a great uh, deal more information on our website um, if, uh, if you want to check that out. So just to ask a, a clarifying question, maybe for our listeners that aren't familiar with the sort of uh, philanthropic ecosystem and how it works. So if I'm understanding it correctly, um, open philanthropy is just an organization that's that's funded for, for analytical purposes. And then let's say a donor or investor comes along and says, hey, I'm looking, I'm interested in animal welfare. I'm interested in climate change. I'm interested in public health. You say, well, these are some people that are doing some great work on it we recommend that you offer your grant money to them. Is that correct? Or am I missing something? No, that, that, that's, that's a good description. Um, so uh, we call ourselves a grant maker rather than a foundation uh, because we, we ourselves don't hold a, a corpus. We instead partner with other foundations. Um, and so we have a, a, a long-running uh, partnership with the foundation of Dustin Moskowitz and Kari Tuna. Um, Dustin uh, was a co-founder co of Facebook and a co-founder of Asana. Um, but we have worked with other funders as well. All right. And um, so coming to the topic of, of animal welfare, this is a subject, I mean, for me is quite close to heart. I'm a vegetarian for a variety of different reasons. But one of those reasons is because I feel like the way that animals are treated, especially in Western countries and these industrial farms, is unethical. Whereas a lot of people make the argument that, you know, animals, 
they're on a lesser level than human beings. Sure, it's sad, kind of, that they suffer, but in the end, I don't really care. So, in your opinion, what is a, what is a persuasive case over why people should care about animal welfare, especially if there's a lot of human suffering also happening? Why should animal welfare become a priority for people? Yeah, so I guess I already think people do care about animal welfare. Um, many of us have relationships with our pets. We watch nature documentaries and visit wildlife sanctuaries. Uh, and perhaps too many of us watch cat videos online. And if any of the, these animals were to be abused or mistreated, uh, we, we would care and we would be concerned. And you can see this reflected in the laws that many countries have to protect pets from abuse. Um, that reflects the common view that animal welfare should be protected. And so the argument that the farm animal welfare movement is making is, is simply that the concern that we already show for, for animals that we come in contact with should be extended to those animals that are part of our, our food system. Um, so just as we care for the welfare of pets and the welfare of, of wild animals um, that we come across, we, we, should also be, we should also care about the animals that that we farm and, and, and that uh, are part of our, our food system. This is very interesting. And I suppose that the animal welfare situation is very different in different continents regarding different regulations that uh, governments around the world have sort of enacted on the sphere. But maybe you could tell us a bit more about sort of the starkest case studies when it comes to animal welfare, what are you mainly looking at uh, uh, in open philanthropy? What are some of the main issues we should be caring about? And also perhaps, how do they even come about? Uh, how do, does the industrial sort of farmed animal industry, when did it come about and how did it manifest over time? Um. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot there to unpack. I guess it it is interesting to consider how recent uh, modern animal agriculture actually is. Um, so factory farms, that is like the really intensive, often indoor farming of animals, um, really only took off in the US first in the 1920s and 30s, and then in in Europe in the 50s and 60s, and and then in other regions afterwards, and in, in some parts of um, the world at the moment, there there's not too much intensive um, farming. Um, and there are a number of different reasons uh, that, that it took off in, in that way around those times, and they include um, technological change um, and also um, the development of antibiotics and, and vitamins and the like that could be could be fed to animals on industrial farms that could keep them alive in conditions where, like naturally, they would be very, very unwell, very sick. Um, and so they still suffer significantly um, living in these conditions, um, but um, modern technology has allowed them to, to, to the, these farms to keep them alive. Um, so thinking about the, the parts of the um, animal agriculture system that are particularly um, uh, fraught and, and suffering have laden for farm animals, um, we think about um, chickens, so both the chickens that lay eggs that, that humans consume and also the chickens that are farmed for their meat. Um, we also think about pigs uh, and then we think about fish. So just to use, um, just to take one of those as an example, um, there are currently about 10 billion chickens being farmed for meat at any particular time. 
And because they live such short lives, um, that means about 70 billion chickens farmed for meat are slaughtered every year. Um, and so these chickens live for fewer than eight weeks compared to a lifespan of around seven, seven years if they were living in the wild. Um, and they're bred to grow so large and so quickly that their bones and organs um, really can't support their weight after a few, after a few weeks. Um, and so as a result, these chickens spend um, you know, a significant amount of their life in, in pain. Um, and you know, th their weight leads to leg deformities and, and other health issues like heart attacks, um, starvation and, and dehydration due to the inability to walk and, and feed and get water. Um, and so this is just one example uh, of, a, of, a, um, of a part of the uh, animal agriculture system that, that leads to considerable um, uh, suffering for, for the animals involved. Thank you. Um, I just want to move on now and, and talk more about the sort of business and effective altruism side of the equation here. Um, and like you said, your, your, your grant finder, um, your organization doesn't, doesn't call itself a foundation for that purpose. But I wanted to know like what the profile of, of what, a, what your donors look like. What is the profile of um, some of the foundations that you, that you partner with and how do you, how do you create these partnerships? I'd really like to like hear more about the process in reaching your end goal of um, better rights for farmed animals. Yeah, so obviously the uh, donors or, or funders are an, an integral part of of the work that we do. Um, but we we do try to think about our work kind of with an independent view rather than trying to, you know, uh, meet the particular interests or needs of, of our donors. What we're trying to do is, uh, as our mission says, achieve the most good we can with the resources available to us. And so, um, it's, you know, I think it's really promising and exciting that that type of analytical and independent and cause-neutral approach is, is of interest to donors. Um, the other uh, key group of actors uh, are the grantees, obviously. Um, and so these are the organisations that we are able to recommend grants to that are doing um, this type of impactful work that we need um, in the financial welfare area, uh, for example, working um, across uh, tens of countries, um, working with at different levels with corporations, um, working on policy change, um, working on alternative protein development, um, and generally just like moving, building the movement um, for uh, change in, for farm animals. And I would just like to add, as a person who has completed the Effective Altruism Fellowship, I think it also is a very like bottom-up approach. It tries to educate people, young people, um, as me, political science students, who perhaps really, really want to change the world, but see that it's really hard to change the world, um, to maybe earn to give and to donate some of your earnings to these very um, efficient causes that can be helped. So you feel like you're actually making a change in the world. So it's also a very beautiful organization in that sense. But I do want to point out that a lot of people uh, are sort of criticizing effective altruism and also such philanthropic organizations for sort of, because there's, I guess, an assumption that they don't focus on systemic change. So maybe, maybe you could address that. Uh, I think 
that open philanthropy does look into some structural issues and like how to structurally change the system. Um, so where's the balance between advocating for structural change and then also donating to charitable organizations? So I would say that um, a large um, share of our, our work in the farm animal, farm animal welfare area is focused on systemic change, um, the vast, vast majority, in fact. Um, and so you can think about systemic change through a number of lenses. So, so one is uh, the more obvious, like policy change. Um, and so there, there's been, you know, over the last 10 years, significant change um, in regards to the regulations and laws that um, uh, cover farm animals. Um, and so in the US, for example, um, seven states have, have banned battery cages and the sale of, of caged eggs. Um, and in Europe, Austria, France and Germany have banned the killing of most day-old male chicks which are part of the, the egg industry. Um, and so we've been supporting uh, grantees that have been, um, you know, partnering with citizens to, to make their voices heard and, and bring about these changes um, through policy and, and through law. And we think that's particularly impactful. Another area of systemic change that we're interested in is the um, decisions and policies of large corporations. Um, and so, uh, Farmer welfare advocates have been working over the last uh, five, 10 years with retailers, fast food chains, and food service companies, initially in uh, the US and Europe, and more recently in, in large countries like Brazil and, 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 um, and Thailand and Vietnam and, and so on, um, to, to, uh, to work with these corporations to have them change their policies around sourcing animal products. Um, and so a lot of the work is focused on uh, getting these retailers, fast food chains and, and food service companies to sign pledges that they will source eggs from caged free suppliers. Um, and this has been um, incredibly successful over the last um, five to 10 years. There's now you know 3,000 3, new corporate policies covering um, uh, layer chickens and broiler chickens. And a large share of these um, policies are actually being met by, by these companies. And so in Europe and the US, um, we have uh, 165 million more hens that are cage-free than, than, than there were five, 10 years ago. Um, and a large part of this is due to the work of advocates that are working with these corporations and, and also citizens and advocates that are working at the policy level. That's actually what I think is a, a really good answer to a lot of these critiques. Obviously, both Milda and I are f fans of, of effective altruism, and, and we get annoyed whenever people say that, oh, you guys don't care about systems-level changes, you guys are just doing your little thing to, to make you feel better or whatever, but you're not actually changing the world. But like you mentioned right there, these aren't mutually exclusive buckets, and I'm really glad that you were able to share exactly what the what happens inside effective altruist organizations um, to ensure that that happens. So I want to move on to um, talking about the sort of sustainability and climate movement aspect um, of animal welfare. So a lot of what you were speaking about was improving the conditions of farm animals, which I think that we a lot of people can agree is a fairly noble cause. But climate advocates would go beyond saying, look, we need to improve the conditions of farm animals. 
we need to completely get rid of meat and animal products from our diet simply because it's a major contributor to climate change. Uh, it takes up far too much land and resources that we could better distribute uh, to human beings. Um, actually, just in our two episodes ago, I guess, in, in episode 21, we were speaking with someone from the Alternative um, Protein Project, and he was discussing how essentially his his end goal as a researcher is to make meat products out of things that aren't meat, that wouldn't require farm traditional farming and things like that. So a lot of, I know that um, open philanthropy is actually one of the major donors to Impossible Foods. That was one of the, the major con contributions that they made. And Impossible Foods is sort of doing something similar to the Alternative Proteins Project. So I want to know how the animal welfare movement and the broader climate movement, uh, sustainability movement, vegan movement, whatever you want to call these uh, aligned movements, where do they um, see eye to eye and where are some of your points of disagreement with them? So what, how do you interact with them, really? Yeah, I think there are really important, meaningful areas um, of agreement and collaboration between those that are concerned about animal welfare and, and those that are concerned about about climate impacts and environmental impacts of animal agriculture. Um, and so you, you referred to, to one there around alternative protein, um, and that is an area that we are at OpenFill are, are interested in and um, are, uh, uh, um, thinking through how it could have an impact for animals. Um, so we support a number of um, not-for-profits that work with governments, corporations and, and others to advocate for and build the field around the alternative protein industry. Um, and um, there's been some exciting progress there in, in recent times as well. Um, so I think as a, as a vegan of uh, 15 or so years, I've really enjoyed the improvement in products over the last couple of years. Um, so I'm particularly partial to a Beyond Meat burger and I'm really excited to see continued rollout of that. And, um, and other other improvements in in the quality of of alternative meats. You were um, vegan before and, it was cool. <laughs> um, and then uh, there's been some uh, real progress with governments as well. So governments are finally investing the kind of long term patient capital that we need to solve the major technical bar barriers to improving and scaling alternative proteins and cultured meats. Um, and I know that the Netherlands, for example, has recently allocated a record 60 million euro um, to support research and development and, and other components related to alternative proteins. Um, there's obviously uh, not uh, complete agreement between the two positions, of it, uh, however. Um, and so I think one area where climate advocates and animal welfare advocates may, may differ is around the types of animal products that they would encourage people to first cut from their diet. Um, and so uh, the climate impacts of, of beef are considerably greater than the climate impacts of any other types of meat, um, whereas uh, the animal welfare impacts of chicken and fish are significantly greater than the animal welfare, welfare impacts of, of other types of, of animal products. Um, and so I think they're despite that i still think there's a way there, there are many opportunities for for the two movements to to collaborate 
Um, and I'd be excited to see to see more of that. You were, we're talking, talking about the situation, situation with chickens, chickens but, but it would, it would also, also be extremely interesting to hear more about the situation with pigs and fishes and exactly how does it manifest and how does it look today? So to produce um, pigs for meat, the industrial um, animal agriculture industry needs to repeatedly impregnate female pigs. And, and while they're preg pregnant, these female pigs are kept in what are called gestation crates for their entire four-month pregnancy. And these crates are coffin-sized cages, roughly the size of the pig's body, and, and so prevents any kind of natural behaviour, including even really basically just turning around, um, let alone walking or, or nesting or seeing sunlight. Um, and then before giving birth, um, the, the, the mother pig is transferred to a, a different crate um, and, and then only given a few weeks in that crate with her piglets before those piglets are taken away and she's um, artificially inseminated and the process starts again. So this is a, a practice that is outlawed in, in a small number of countries, but unfortunately is incredibly widespread otherwise. Um, and it's a an area where I think most people, or if not every, every person would agree, is um, not an appropriate way to treat another living creature. Um, when it comes to fish, um, it's there's a level of um, complexity uh, to the situation. Um, so firstly, fish isn't a species. Instead, it's like a group of species. And and we, uh, we as a civilization farm hundreds, if not thousands, of species of fish, each of which has its own characteristics. Um, and this is distinct than, this is distinct to, for example, the chicken industry, uh, where we're only really speaking about one species and uh, even just a couple of breeds of that species. The second, second area of complexity when it comes to fish is that there are a variety of methods used in fish farming. Uh, so some, for example, some fish are farmed in on-land tanks, while others are farmed in enclosed sections or in effect nets in the open ocean. Um, despite these complexities, like the scale of, of fish farming is truly enormous, like billions and billions of fish are farmed every year. Um, and there are some like, really clear common welfare issues across the entire aquaculture industry. Uh, so in, in fish farms, large numbers of fish are confined in quite small areas. Um, so for example, salmon can be about 75 centimetres long but they're given the space equivalent of just a bathtub of water. Uh, and so this leads to, uh, so the overcrowding leads to disease and, and suffering um, with stress, aggression, and physical uh, injuries. And it can also lead to uh, poor water quality so that the fish have less oxygen um, to breathe than, than they need. Um, and then the way in which farmed fish are slaughtered um, is, uh, uh, their welfare is largely ignored through, through that slaughtering process. Um, so many fish are simply removed from the tanks and left to suffocate in the air, um, and others are, are, are slaughtered um, with a knife while, while they're still alive. And so the scale of, of the um, fish farming industry and, and, the, um, and the welfare issues involved mean this is an area that we think there's a, a significant room for industry improvement, significant room for regulatory uh, improvement. And we are, uh, yeah, we're excited to be funding um, grants related to that as well. Yeah, that's, um, that's very interesting. And thank you for elaborating on that.
So for yourself personally, like it's clear from hearing you speak on these subjects that you're someone that's incredibly passionate about the cause that you're working for. And that's really great to hear. And I would just like to know a little bit more about your journey and how you ended up at Open Phil working in this job that you're clearly so passionate about. Um, so I've um, spent much of my career at the intersection of like evidence and data analysis and social impact. Um, so I've um, worked in international development. Um, I've lived and worked in Vietnam and Malawi and Zambia, um, uh, generating evidence for decision-making to improve um, programs and policy, policies related to reducing poverty and improving livelihoods um, internationally. Uh, I've also worked um, in government and, and, and in consulting. Um, so I've been involved in the effective altruism or adjacent to the effective altruism for a community for, for many years. Um, and I, um, you know, I've had an interest in philosophy and found the, um, the arguments for being concerned about the welfare of um, people living in poverty internationally and also being concerned about the welfare of, of the animals that we farm. Found those arguments particularly compelling, um, and so uh, it's um, so I've been involved um, in uh, you know, those those movements in, in a variety of different ways over time, um, and then uh, last year the this uh, opportunity came up at Open Philanthropy, and um, it seemed to be uh, a great fit for me and something I was really excited to be in, involved in and. Um, the opportunity hasn't disappointed at all. And, and while we're speaking about uh, jobs at Open Philanthropy, I'll just mention that we have a number of open open positions on our website at the moment. So it would be really excited for people to check that out. That's a great plug, actually. Uh, a lot of <laughs> what we were talking about before uh, on episode 21 is um, unpaid internships and how a lot of students uh, can't afford to do those. Uh, it's glad to hear that there are some paid positions, especially in this labor market. Yeah, definitely very exciting stuff. I, I'll maybe check those out myself in the future. So uh, one more niche topic we wanted to touch upon, and I don't know if this is exactly your expertise, but this is something quite kind of popular right now in effective altruism is wild animal suffering. Uh, could you maybe tell us what it is exactly and what are the issues regarding wild ad animal suffering and how can we help them? Um, so the, uh, the motivating um, thought behind considering wild animal suffering is that the number of animals in the wild is um, significant, um, many, many more times the number of animals in any other um, setting currently um and it's possible that many of those animals are experiencing you know suffering um at different times throughout their lives um and so it seems like a very important uh area both given the the scale and also the you know current lack of uh, interest from government and, and philanthropy in in understanding and uh, potentially thinking about how we might address the um, experiences and suffering of animals in the wild. Um, so I would note that it's a uh, a field of inquiry that is relatively new um, 
and the scientific community is a is at an early stage in exploring questions around around wild animal experiences. Um, and we have uh, made a number of grants in this area. So, you know, we're really interested in seeing how this fundamental research progresses, really interested in seeing how the field progresses over coming years, um, and interested in, you know, whether there, there are some tractable interventions that might be able to, to um, cons might be able to reduce um, animal suffering. Martin, thank you so much for uh, taking half an hour of your time here um, and chatting with us two college students. Uh, we really valued the insight that you gave us both into the animal welfare movement um, and into what it looks like being part of an effective altruist organization such as yours. Um, your time was really valuable and I think our listeners will have really enjoyed the input that you gave us. Um, and that does, in fact, wrap up this 23rd episode of Wake Up Call. Thank you all for listening. And thank you once again, Martin, for coming on the show. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed it.